The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Hello, Mrs. Phelps. Hello, yes. Mrs. Jonathan Phelps. Yes. Mrs. Jonathan Phelps of 8 Pusley Rise, Hounslow, Middlesex. Yes. Did I get you out of the bath to answer the phone? Yes, you did. Sorry, wrong number. Your tricks are so blooming dismal. I know, Stanley. Don't rub it in. I've lost my spark. There was a time when I used to get lots of ideas. I was creative, original. I thought out the seven deadly sins in one afternoon. The only thing I've come up with recently is advertising. Blimey, we're due at Mrs. Wisby's. Hurry up, let's get changed. You're so dull the way you go about things. Everything you do is third rate. Pass me over my britches, there's a good chap. Pass me my britches. <laughs> the Prince of Darkness changing his britches in a GPO van. What's the matter with you? Where's your style? Use your magic powers. I don't waste those. I've got to save all that up for my struggle with him. I thought you were supposed to be his equal. <laughs> That'll be the day. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, October 23rd. I'm Robert Vaughn. I'm Bob Metz. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now till noon. No, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Welcome to the show. And it's good to be back. I've had a couple of weeks hiatus, but... Um, yeah, how's the new life out there? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I've been moving, so I've been very, very busy. Yeah. Uh, but it's good to be back. And um, to all our listeners out there, you can uh, send us some feedback at feedback at justrightmedia.org. You can go to our website and download all of our radio shows dating back to 2007. So, to begin with, I wanted to just mention that Yesterday, after listening to those events on Parliament Hill, I gave Bob a call and asked Bob, do you want to do a special show on the events that were taking place? And his answer was, you know, to what end, really? And I had to sort of explain at least why I thought maybe that would be important. He goes, look, every show we do is to the effect that we are trying to prevent things like that. And our show is is, is not really meant to uh, comment on the news of the day as they're happening, but as we get all the information, condense it, distill it, and then look at it and analyze it in a much more non-emotional but reasonable way. And and he's absolutely right, which is why we're just going to continue on today with our show and um, perhaps at some point in the future may take the events on Parliament Hill and, uh, and work them into a an analysis. So, the last half of the show, I'm going to be talking about comedy and the comedic freedom fighters. And what are you going to be starting us off with, Bob? Well, you know, Robert, um, it really didn't change my my topic or my viewpoint on uh, what we're talking about today, what happened yesterday. Hmm. You know, I've heard a lot of people saying, well, it's the way the world has been going lately right when they hear these events and they just start taking them for granted and i've been hearing in the news you know various calls by several government officials advising people to beware of anyone around them who has been radicalized and they defined radicalization as being about people who hold opinions different from the majority and i'm thinking yikes that's you and me (laughs) you know what opinions what majority are they talking about? So I think the big question that arises from all of this, and including, you know, all of this relates to the current elections going on in Ontario too, the municipal elections, etc. And what is the objective of living in a democracy? And I think the objective isn't living in a democracy. The objective is freedom. And that's the, the thing that democracy offers us. So I had intended to go back again to doing some, you know, basics, looking at the basics, and um, on the threat to Western civilization and uh, 
which comes from within, really, from our own people, from the way people vote. And people are, are kind of voting themselves into more, more government, more taxes, less freedom. And we're going to see more events like this because of our the way we react to things and the kind of uh, po policies we've been having lately. Not to say we're, we're still not a relatively free democracy relative to other countries around the world. You know, I hear a lot of frustration and almost a form of desperation about how some people are voting in the London municipal election and about who they say they're voting for. And they worry about the short-term, short-range thinking of both our politicians and the voters who support them. And the pragmatism that trades freedom for some sort of perceived security. And I've been listening to uh, a lot of the thinking behind these ideas and how people vote during municipal elections. And it, I can't help but conclude that an extraordinarily few actually understand what they're doing. Those few I would categorize as the informed voters or the rational citizens. But because democracy has come to be viewed as rule by the greater number over the smaller number, rational governance in a free and prosperous society for the ma vast majority of people will start slipping away and almost elude us. And dissatisfaction with our governments can only continue to grow under this. So unless we, the people, do something about it, we have to do something about it, but not just something, the right thing. And unfortunately, right now, the majority is, you know, voting away its freedom and ultimately the very democracy on which a lot of their freedoms and, and, and futures depend. So, you know, in the, in the preface to his 1949 lecture, Conditions of Freedom, Professor of Moral Philosophy John McMurray wrote, who's, who I've been a fan of, he says, you know, dignity, freedom, and responsibility are inseparably bound together. Without freedom, we have no dignity. Without responsibility, we have no freedom. <coughs> the threat to freedom comes not from within, without, but from within, from a lowering of our sense of human dignity and from a growing effort to escape responsibility. And isn't that what we vote for every time? Get something free, you know? So, <laughs> it so, seems to. Yeah. Yes. So I thought it might be time to take out a moment or two to, to review some of these basics again. Don't want to go back to the fundamental princi principles of a liberal democracy and freedom in the way that we've done over the past few weeks. This time I think I want to look at the people themselves. We the people. We the dummies. We the little men, as Willem Reich put it in his book, uh, Listen, Little Man. And that's the book I've turned to um, for guidance on this because, you know, he wrote uh, this book, Listen, Little Man, way back in the summer of 1946, Willem Reich, and he's, of course, notoriously known for other books like The Cancer Biopathy, Character Analysis, Ether God and Devil, Cosmic Superimposition, The Function of the Orgasm, The Mass Psychology of Fascism, excellent book, by the way, The Murder of Christ, and Reich Speaks of Freud, just to mention a few. Now, Listen, Little Man, I think he wrote that, and correct me if I'm wrong, because um, it's a very passionate book, and I think mm -hmm. when the title of it is, is Listen, Little Man, <laughs> not oh, yes. just listen, little man. And he didn't want it published. No, he, it wasn't his intention to originally publish it. And uh, he wrote it out of frustration. And he just right after World War II, what he saw around him. And got to understand, he was, he's a psychiatrist. He was l listening to these people in his studio and listening to the kinds of things that they would say uh, about their society at the time. And, um, you know, he makes the case there are essentially two kinds of people in the world, the kind and rational people, who are the living people, he calls them, and the people, he says, who are infected with the emotional plague, who I would might call the walking dead, <laughs> if you want to <laughs> make a distinction today. And he writes, you know, a kindly man believes that all men are kindly, while one infected with the plague believes that all men lie and cheat and are hungry for power. He says it's high time for the living to get tough, for toughness is indispensable in the struggle and will not detract from their goodness as long as they stand courageously by the truth. There's but one antidote to the average man's predisposition to plague, his own feelings for true life. Anyone who wants to safeguard this life force from the emotional plague must learn to make at least as much use of the right of free speech that we enjoy in America for good ends as the emotional plague does for evil ends. Granted equal opportunity for expression rationality is bound to win out in the end, and that is our great hope, he says. Now, I think that um, democracy is still in its infancy, if, you, if we look at it in terms of 
the world development. We're still in the very early stages of democracy, really. We're still figuring it out. It's just a couple of lifetimes. Exactly. And, and so voters are still very immature in a lot of ways, too, in the sense that we, we don't trust each other. We always think we're out after each other because a lot of us have fallen into that category that, um, that Wright is talking about. So he writes um, in his book, he says, he's speaking to the little man, the average guy in the street, the guy who would vote his freedoms away for a bit of security. He says, your thinking is short-sighted, little man. You can see no further than from breakfast to lunch. You must learn to think backward and forward over centuries. Because you have no memory for things that happened 10 or 20 years ago, you're still mouthing the same nonsense as 2,000 years ago. Worse, you cling with might and main to such absurdities as race, class, nation, and the obligation to observe a religion and repress your love. I've never participated in party meetings, he writes, or political conferences, because all they do is shout, down with the main point, and hooray for incidentals. Does that sound <laughs> familiar? <laughs> Holy cow, that's, a, that's what we talk about here every week on the show. Yep, trying to get people yeah. back to the main point. And he says, uh, you know, you only wanted to be saved. And when the Second World War was over, you were right back where you were when it started. A little further to the left or the right, but you hadn't advanced. One millimeter, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Great way to express it. You simply fail to realize that hope must spring from your own understanding. You pump hope only into yourself, never out of yourself. You ask me, little man, when will you have a good, secure life? The answer is alien to your nature. You'll have a good, secure life when being alive means more to you than security. Love more than money, your freedom more than public or partisan opinion. When your thinking is in harmony and no longer in conflict with your feelings. When you let yourself be guided by the thoughts of great sages and no longer by the crimes of great warriors. When truths inspire you and empty formulas repel you, end quote. Well, we're certainly a long way from that kind of voter or citizen from what's happening in Ottawa to the mayoral and council elections going on right here in the city of London. You can see that every word I've just quoted from Reich still hold, holds very true to this very day. And, you know, freedom of choice is what we always say. Freedom of choice is what we're all about. Remember how we used to say that all the time? The slogan of freedom yeah. party, yes. And, of course, it's our freedom of choice that's at the heart of every single political issue. Many cannot identify sometimes even what freedom of choice is versus a specific choice or choices themselves. Some people believe they have freedom of choice often when it's clear they do not. For example, monopoly cable companies will advertise that they have a widening range of cable choices for their customers, which, whether true or not, is not freedom of choice in the political sense. If there were freedom of choice in the cable industry, then anyone, you and I included, could enter that cable company field free of government regulations and determine everything from what channels would be allowed to be made to, you know, to things like even Canadian content rules and financing restrictions. So no, many, no matter how, how many choices the cable companies offer under these monopoly conditions, Politically, we can't call that freedom of choice when the competitors are under a monopoly themselves. You could say the same thing about Ontario's booze monopolies, whether public or private. They're government monopolized. Even you know, cell phones and communications, very much monopolized and, and, and very limited competition starting to come in. But as it comes in, we start seeing our prices go down and our standard of living going up. So what I want to do in the next part of the program is get a little bit back into the issue of democracy. We're going to take a break now, listening to Dudley Moore from the movie um, Bedazzled. And it's interesting how the devil cares about us, but perhaps not God himself. Interesting. Come back right after this. Anyway, enough of my problems. Sit down. Thank you. You must be exhausted after all that business with Margaret. Jealousy really takes it out of you, doesn't it? Think things over before you decide on your next wish. Don't rush into it. Have a bit of kip. Things will seem clearer in the morning. You can use my bed if you like. Slip into this. Huh. Where will you sleep then? Oh, don't worry about me. I never do. I had a fitful doze in the Middle Ages. Since then, nothing. Go on, you can change through there. Thank you. It's very kind of you to lend me your room and your bed like this. You're the first person who's ever shown any concern for me and you're the devil, I mean, God's never taken any interest in me, as far as I can see. Of course not. He never pushes himself forward. Prefers to work subliminally. It's the oldest trick in the game, your soft cell technique. Well, I wish he would push himself forward and help people a bit and prove he was there. 
Well, in God's view, for what it's worth, this would interfere with your freedom of choice. Freedom of choice? What sort of freedom of choice did I have about where I was born and what size I was and what a bloody awful job I landed myself in? Plummy, if we really had freedom of choice, we, we should be able to decide who our parents are and what we look like and everything. I couldn't agree more. Well then, why the hell doesn't he do something about it? God knows. Well, that's very handsome, I must say. Bit long. Suits you down to the ground. Looks very good on you. Actually, um, red's not really my colour. I'm normally a bit more conservative. But it's fair nice, sir. In you get. You know, Mr. Spigot, you're really the first person who's ever taken the trouble to talk to me. I like you, but you keep on doing these terrible things. It's nothing personal. I just got in before they closed. Well done, Mrs. Risby. Now, all you have to do is answer one very simple question. Are you ready? Yes. How tall is the Duke of Edinburgh? Oh, dear. Let me see. I saw it somewhere. Six foot one, is it? Alas, no. The correct answer is six foot two. And this means you've lost ten pounds. Terribly sorry, Mrs. Wisby. Better luck next time. Come on, Stanley. Off we go. Goodbye. That poor old lady, how can you be so mean? That grasping, greedy old bag. She didn't mind the idea of cheating Froonies. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you something about Margaret Spencer. Oh, what's that? She's dead. Oh, she's not. No, she's not. She's not? No, she's alive. Then why did you say that? Malice. I'm a liar. I do it the whole time. I can't help it. <laughs> Are you telling me that everything you've ever said is a lie? Everything I've ever told you has been a lie, including that. Including what? That everything I've ever told you has been a lie. That's not true. I don't know what to believe. Not me, Stanley. Believe me. <laughs> That's funny because, uh, you know, here you, ha here, here you have a situation. If you can't believe the devil, who can you believe in? <laughs> uh, great, great show, the original Bedazzled. Um, with Peter Cook, who played the devil in that, and of course, um, the role played by, um, oh, what's his name, um, Dudley Moore, Stanley, he's the little man in that, right? He literally, almost Reich's character coming right out of that. And Willem Reich goes on to speak, uh, you know, about the great man versus the little man. He says, a great man knows when and what way he is a little man. A little man does not know he is, he is little and is afraid to know. The less he understands something, the more firmly he believes in it. And the better he understands an idea, the less he believes in it. And Reich writes, I know what you call God really exists, but not in the form you think. God is primal con cosmic energy, the love in your body, your integrity, and your perception of the nature in you and outside of you. You are unaware that men and women exist who are inherently incapable of oppressing and exploiting you, men and women who want to be free, really and truly free. You dislike such men and women because they are alien to your nature. They are simple and forthright. They value the truth as much as you value trickery. You never ask yourself whether your thinking is right or wrong. You ask yourself what your neighbor will say about it, or whether, if you do right, it will cost you money. After driving the great man into solitude, you forgot what you did to him. You merely talked more nonsense, played another dirty trick, inflicted another deep hurt, and you forget. But a great man does not forget. He doesn't plot revenge, but tries to understand why you behave so miserably. I know that too is beyond you, but believe me, even if you hurt him any number of times, even if you inflict wounds that can never heal, even if a moment after your petty misdeed you forget what you've done, the great man suffers for your misdeeds in your stead, not because they are great, but because they are petty. That's the thing. He tries to understand what makes you take what is given, give what's demanded of you, but never freely give, you know, freely and, and lovingly. What makes you kick those who are down or on the way down, lie instead of telling the truth and persecute, not lies, but the truth. 
Little man, you're always on the side of the persecutors. All great men have been solitary. It's hard to think in your company, little man. One can only think about you or for your benefit, but not with you. When you find something worthwhile in others, you kill it. You plead for happiness in life, but security means more to you, even if it costs you your backbone or wrecks your whole life. Invariably, you miss the truth in your thinking. You could have become the master of your existence long ago if your thinking aimed at the truth. You want to, be, you want to free the world from its sufferings. The misguided workers run away from you and you run after them shouting, can't you see I'm your liberator? Down with capitalism. <laughs> a civilization cannot be built by starving people but requires a development of every sphere of life that you must free your society from all tyranny. That truly great man made t only two mistakes in his efforts to enlighten you. He believed that you were capable of freedom and capable of safeguarding your freedom once you had won it. And his second mistake was to pr pr proclaim you, the proletarian, a dictator. You'd have overcome the tyrants long ago if you had been inwardly alive and sound. In the past, your oppressors sprang from the upper classes of society, but today they spring from your own ranks. Very powerful words, speaking to, you know, the voter, you and me, Robert. I thought an interesting t uh, observation, too, was about democracy in general. Uh, made by someone else, a fellow named uh, T.E. Jessup, who also gave a speech um, shortly after World War II, January 1948, again at uh, Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, and that was T.E. Jessup. He made an interesting point explaining how Western society evolved and what it evolved from, right? He says, what has happened most plainly in the course of time and most plainly in all of the West in the last 3,000 years is not simply that men have passed from barbarism to civilization, for under strict enough control, slaves can do that, but that they have risen out of mere massness into individuality, from sameness into difference, from being passive spouts of the tribal consciousness to becoming independent and unique centers of thought and action. This last way of expressing the matter shows that the pro process of individualization has gone step in step with freedom. Our view of the past will go awry at many points if we do not always bear in mind the fact that the mass came first and the individual last. Society was not contrived by and out of men who had I any individuality prior to it, but generated individuals in its own slow development. Distinctive persons did not produce the group, but were differentiated out of it. Isn't that an interesting way of looking at it? Individuality was not a birth gift, but an achievement. And any society that hinders that achievement is thwarting the greatest trend of our whole past. Interesting way of looking at it. And of course, um, speaking at the same university one year later, in January 1949, again, John McMurray in his book, Condition of Freedom, makes us aware of yet another seeming reversal of order, although it's really not. He says, democratic institutions are an essential condition of political freedom, but democracy as we know it is not in and of itself a guarantee of freedom, far less to be identified with freedom. Freedom has other and profounder roots. The English people prided themselves on their freedom long before democracy as we know it had been thought of. Well, I, I, I don't really know that I agree entirely mm -hmm. with his uh, way of looking at it. And you say it's a unique way of looking at it. Yeah, it is. But uh, I think everybody is born as an individual with the potential to be so different from everybody else. But what happens is the mass squelches it right at birth. It, it sits on individuality and, and then People be, were born individual, but then they become the mass. There's only a rare well, few that are able to maintain their individuality or get out of that mass. Well, in that case, I would say you actually agree with it. That's what, that's what they're saying. Yeah, we're all individuals, but the fact we came from that collective past. And, and it's an accomplishment that within the collective, we can now behave as individuals, right? That's, that's the achievement of democracy and of freedom. In any case, uh, getting back to um, Willem Reich, he has something interesting to say about your next subject coming up, humor. And uh, I don't think it's very funny. I call it not funny. He, he says, again, speaking to the little man, he says, every single one of your petty misdeeds throws a light on the wretchedness of human life. Every one of your petty actions diminishes the hope of improving your lot just a little more. And that is ground for deep, heartbreaking sorrow. 
to avert such sorrow, you make jokes, silly jokes. That's what you call your sense of humor. You hear a joke about yourself and you join in the laughter. You don't laugh because you appreciate the humor at your own expense, which is one way of doing it. You laugh without suspecting you are laughing at yourself and that the joke is on you. So coming up next, uh, we'll be looking at humor as a weapon against political correctness and as a means of affecting and changing public opinions. Go to a break now. We'll be back right after this. I have to, t I have to tell you that uh, um, I, I love the men folk. I do. I enjoy the men folk. But, um, and I have many brothers. But I hate the practical joke. You know what I like about the practical joke? When it doesn't happen. That's my favorite part. And, uh, but now, I, I have comics that set me up on practical jokes. I have a friend of mine who told me, for example, that I could get a massage down on Venice Beach for cheap. Down on Muscle Beach. You can get touched. I went to Venice Beach, shorts and a t-shirt, they got tables, they got tents set up, and I'm on, I'm on the beach, right? And it's all happening. I got shorts and a t-shirt, I go up to the guy that I'm told to go to, old Chinese dude, Mr. Lee, and I lay on the table, and he starts working on my back, and it's great. It's great! And yay! And then he starts working on my legs. And he's working up my legs, and he's working up my legs. <laughs> Until I am forced to say to Mr. Lee, hey, that's where I keep my vagina. You're going to need to move to the other leg. Or up to the left and faster. One of the two, because I am not made of stone, as I've pointed out. And then he moved to the other leg, and no one was more disappointed than I. Another 90 seconds, best tip of the day. live comedy you people see and thank God you're out seeing me doing and you and camera where we are yeah go out and see some live comedy yeah and tip the wait staff not a hobby okay so um here's the thing I don't know how much comedy you see in, in real life but uh, it's great and I'm psyched that you are out seeing real comedy but if you see a lot of comedy you know the comics sell stuff after their shows and um, crap Kind of. They just, and I'm not talking about CDs or books that they've written. I'm talking about actual just crap. Um, T-shirts and ball caps and bumper stickers and anything not really nailed down. Because there's no money in stand-up comedy. Don't, no, don't let the clothes throw you. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, there's, there really isn't. So comics will sell anything. And I don't begrudge them that. But I can't sell any more crap in my life. Too many, too much sales. No more sales. I can't sell any more stuff. So I was working in Tulsa and this very drunk woman came up to me after the show and said, hey, you should sell a t-shirt that says up to the left and faster. Because that's funny. You should sell that. No. Not me. Not so much. Two reasons I will not be selling the up to the left and faster t-shirt. First of all, I don't want to be the vagina t-shirt lady. And second of all, and this is from a strictly sales point of view, that wouldn't be the t-shirt. Up to the left and faster isn't funny out of context. That's the dumbest t-shirt ever. What? The t-shirt would have to say, horrifyingly enough, that's where I keep my vagina. With a big arrow going down. And I'd sell a million of them. And for the fellas, it would be, that's where I keep my vagina. With a big arrow going to the left. Like I was stupid. And I'd sell a billion of them. And then I could count all of my money in hell. Because that's where you count your vagina t-shirt money. Thanks a lot, you guys. I love doing it. Take care. And that brings us to our next topic, which is comedy, and that was Jackie Cashian from the Vagina Monologue. Uh, pretty funny stuff, but, you know, we're going to be talking about comedy and, and how it pushes the envelope and how it actually changes our society and, and makes us, um, well, let's say uh, more classically liberal, more small-l liberal in our, in our dealings with each other. But what better way 
to talk about comedy and stand-up comedy and comedians than to actually have a comedian tell us themselves. And on the line is where a local stand-up comedian, Scott Williams-Oaks. Hi, Scott. Are you there? Yes. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, it's going great. Um, now, I understand that you're going to be taking part in a uh, local festival um, called Jest or October Jest. Is that right? Yes, it's uh, a festival. Um, it's not really a festival. It's just like a one-night thing. Um, it's the second incarnation of it. I, I did it last year on a much smaller scale, downtown London. Uh, this year, it's going to be stepped up quite a bit. Um, there's 13 comedians. Uh, all from the local scene. London ha- has a, um, a re-emerging amateur stand-up comedy scene over the last couple of years um, that is very vibrant. There's probably maybe two, five open mics throughout the city um, every any given month um, uh, at bars and clubs, and there's also um, maybe three times a year amateur night at Yuck Yucks at the Western Fair District. So... Uh, it's going to be a great night. Um, it's completely free as long as you're 19 years or over. Uh, it is for mature audiences. Oh, so and you're not just going to charge the 18 and younger, are you? No. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was a joke, Scott. <laughs> 19 and over are free, but uh, never mind. <laughs> I, I made sure when planning the event with the organizers that they were very comfortable with what I was bringing to the table as far as material. Oh, I, I is it risque? Is it very risky? It can be, and that's and I never want to ever censor or limit anything that the comedians that I perform with or I have at events that I do because I don't feel that they should be. Um, and so that's why I made clear with the organizers of this event uh, at, at Flavors uh, that it, it is for mature audiences, and it it has to be 19 plus just, you know, protect their interests uh, as well as mine uh, and just have a really uh, uh, uninhibited night that's fun. Uh, We're also going to have a politically incorrect costume contest where I'm really encouraging participants to push the envelope with the costume ideas that they have. So it's a little bit different than your traditional Halloween costume contest. You know, I was wondering about that, Scott. So... If you're pushing the envelope with costumes, if two people show up naked as Adam and Eve, does that count as pushing the envelope? <laughs> well, as, I mean, anything that breaks a, a law, you know, might be pushed. And, okay. Um, the, Got to the check these things contest, out. Go right. ahead. Uh, the costume contest is going to be judged by uh, members of the local radio, radio media uh, from across the city. And I've instructed them to sort of have an open mind, have a, have a sense of humor, you know, take things with a grain of salt. Um, and at the same time, it, it's up to the judges and the judges alone to decide, you know, when someone has crossed that line that might hurt them in winning, you know, the prizes of the night. But I, I really encourage people that are coming to this, this event to think, you know, um, creatively, <laughs> Uh, as far as, you know, hilarity and, you know, topical events that are happening, you know, in the news or, you know, challenging social norms and social taboos uh, for the sake of political incorrectness and just having fun and poking fun at our fears and our inhibitions and our taboos uh, and, you know, just have a really great night. Well, that's what I'm going to be talking about um, the last quarter of the hour, Scott, is how comedians, and I'm going to be thinking about people like Don Rickles, um, Joan Rivers, um, Lenny Bruce, all of these people have actually taken social norms and made us not only, not only offend us, um, but make us think critically about things like religion, sex, politics, race, culture. Um, who were your um, influences, Scott, uh, and, and who do you think may have been one of the best comedians out there to push that envelope? Um, well, uh, as far as um, old comedians, I'm very well aware of, you know, Lenny Bruce, Joan Rivers, of course, when they first started out, you know, were widely accepted as, you know, risque, but they spoke about things that people were, you know, talking about behind closed doors and thinking about. Um, as far as more modern, 
because I'm only 30 years old. Actually, I turned 30 on Sunday. Um, I'm uh, a big fan of Dennis Leary, Doug Stanhope, um, the late Mitch Hedberg, uh, the late Greg Giraldo, um, the late, a lot of these comedians are dead, um, uh, the late Patrice O'Neill. Um, Sam I'm, I'm seeing a trend here. <laughs> They're all so, dead, <laughs> except for Dennis sorry, Leary. Um, just, I'm just recovering from a cold. Uh, most of the comedians that I like personally are the ones that are very risque, um, very topical that some people consider really offensive. But I guess it just depends on, you know, um, what your comfort, comfort level is. And, and that's the thing about comedy. It, it, it has a really wide spectrum. And if it's taken out of context, someone could get really offended. But, you know, taken in context, you know, it might make you think about things differently, challenge some, um, misled ideas that you've had about society and what's right and wrong, religion, sex, race, all those topics. Now, back in the 60s, and I think Lenny Bruce was arrested back in 66, if I'm not mistaken, for obscenity, um, simply for for talking. And, um, and there was a recent incident a couple of years back of a uh, comedian here in Canada, I think it was out in the West, who uh, apparently offended some uh, lesbians in the audience, and they uh, took him to the Human Rights uh, Commission. Um, have, has the pendulum swung back from the, uh, the prudish days of the 50s, 60s? Are we, are we, is that pendulum now swinging back and uh, making comedians actually second-guess what they're saying and for fear of being arrested or taken before some kangaroo court? I firmly believe so, and here's why. The rise of social media has given everybody a voice, a critical voice, um, to where comedians are being tweeted and Facebooked um, on a daily basis from people that, you know, they might not otherwise have heard of if it was maybe 10 years, 20 years earlier. So with the rise of social media and basically people being in contact with each other like every second, um, I see a lot of comedians or entertainers or athletes, actors, uh, double-backing on things that they have said with a fake apology just to save face and to save, you know, uh, public relations. And I, I, every time that happens, I shake my head and I'm like, no, like, stand up for what you said, what you believe in, you know. There's, for every one person that complains, there's probably a 1,000 or 10,000 people that agree with what you're saying and thought what you said was funny. So it, I agree the pendulum has one back because you see a lot of these people making fake apologies, which I don't think they should have to because, you know, I'm a firm believer in free speech and um, having a conversation about the things that they're speaking about. Because if you just shy away and, and don't talk about things, you know, that's when things can get really bad uh, and fear and paranoia can spread to the point where, you know, you're going through you know, the McCarthy ages where you're basically accusing your neighbor and, and it can just turn really bad. Well, Scott, it's, uh, I totally agree with you and I wish you well at um, uh, October Jest 2. Can you just give us the details again, where and when? Sure, uh, it's October Jest 2. It's Saturday night, this Saturday night, October 25th at Flavors, which is formerly Smoke and Bones at 855 Wellington Road at Southdale under the new Holiday Inn. It's a 19-plus event, completely free, featuring 13 local comedians and a politically incorrect costume contest uh, with prizes from um, The Love Shop, All-Star Cuts, Inkwell Tattoo, and more, judged by four members of the local radio community. And once again, it's completely free. What which time I, does it start? I've always wanted it to be, because uh, I think people deserve to and, and need to have a laugh, especially with things going on this week. We need to just let our hair down and relax, have a laugh completely free. What time does it start, Scott? It starts at 9 p.m., and the show begins about 9.30. So we, I encourage people to get there right at 9, get there early, get their seats, ha start having conversations, and just have a really great night. That sounds great. Thanks very much, Scott. Thanks for having me. I love your show. Uh, I always listen, and it's a treat to be on it. That's, that's fantastic. Thank you very much. Take care. So um, let's go um, to our break next, and when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion about how comedians are fighting for freedom and pushing that envelope. We'll be back right after this. Now, 
you know, I was just talking about on, on your future. Now, what do you want to do with your life when you grow up, you know, when you get bigger? Uh, who do you want to be like? Well, I'm not going to get much bigger, but who I want to be like, who I admire the most, yeah. is I want to be like my father. Who? Gort Smothers. He used to take me for walks Wait, in the who? park. Gort, he used to take me Tommy. for walks no, in no, the... No, no, you no. Your father's name was Mort. <laughs> then who's that guy I was hanging around? With? I don't know. <laughs> well, he did a lot of things. My old man's a sailor. What do you think about that? He wears a sailor's collar, he wears a sailor's hat, he wears a sailor's raincoat, he wears a sailor's shoes, and every Saturday evening he reads the Sunday news, and someday, if I can, I'm gonna be a sailor, the same as my old man. My old man's a Negro, what do you think about that? Wait a minute, wait a minute, what do you mean by Hold on, hold on. Tommy, I'm afraid Don't you're incorrect. My old man's a Negro. He is not a Negro. You are a no fascist. No chance, I'm not a fascist. <laughs> then you know some people who are. <laughs> I know you, and I know me, and I know you're my brother, so that makes it impossible, absolutely, Im genetically impossible for your you old man to be a Negro. You know why? Because my old man is not a Negro. No wonder Mom always liked you best. <laughs> nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. Um, I was, uh, I was talking to this girl, and she said to me, she was like, oh, it's okay for me to say f because my brother is gay? That is a terrible excuse. Just because you know somebody, you can't use a slur. Like, for me, it's okay to say f but that's because I'm full of hate. <laughs> it's just an expression of that hatred. There's that's particularly funny. <laughs> but did you get that some others brothers clip, the first one there? You had this mother's brothers talking about my old man's a Negro. Mm -hmm. And what's important about that clip and how pushing the envelope was back in that day, and that was 1968, um, African Americans were called Negroes. They were still, they still use that term, which we don't use today because it's offensive to a lot of people. The thing is that the Smothers Brothers were so liberal at the time, they had their show scrutinized by the CBS censors, if you want to use that word censored, but uh, I don't, don't think it's censorship. Um, and now I think there are people out there who would look at the Smothers Brothers as being rather conservative <laughs> for using that word. So the, the envelope has to be pushed and pushed and pushed and, and never let up on it, you know. And, and the Smothers Brothers and people like them are, to me, heroes, in a sense, to freedom and liberalism, small l there. Are you, and, but we usually think of such um, freedom, you know, uh, freedom fighters as politicians, you know, like Thomas Jefferson or, or generals like Washington or Patton, uh, philosophers like Aristotle or Rand, and even ordinary folk like... Um, who, who find themselves in a, da as a, in a David and Goliath situation, like a Rosa Parks. Uh, but the unsung heroes, I think, of freedom are a lot of comedians. Like the Smothers Brothers, they, they put their jobs and their lives at risk by saying what they did and having the guests that they had. You know, if there was a job description for the role of comedian, it'll probably be uh, someone necessary to push the boundaries of ignorance and prejudice and to speak out against injustice and hatred and um, must supply their own soapbox and a microphone and minimum wage, no benefits. That'd be the job description. Since the court jester, it's been the comedian who reminds us what we should take seriously and what we should be laughed at. And like the court jester, it's the comedian's ability to act the fool which allows him to get away with telling off the king. The king would take pity on the jester for being such a fool. And it was this pity which allowed him great latitude in what he could say as a 
jester or as a comedian. That's not to say that there are now de- uh, definite barriers which should not and could not be crossed. Lenny Bruce was, was one such comedian who met the barrier of obscenity laws in the United States in the early 60s, found guilty and sentenced to four months in a workhouse for for swearing, basically, in his show. He died while his case was on appeal through a morphine overdose. The, the late <laughs> Lenny Bruce, just going back to Scott saying his, my, all his favors are late this and late that. Mm-hmm. Well, the late Lenny Bruce, he died when his case was on appeal and later pardoned, but he had met the outer limit of the obscenity envelope, and his case was responsible in part, I believe, for helping to for us as a society to push past it. In many ways, the best comedy at least to me that is, is that which attacks the norm, the complacent, the conservative, and the closed-minded. Other great names of comedy were uh, mentioned before, Joan Rivers for her biting political edginess, George Carlin for his novel approach to obscenity, with the seven uh, words you can't really say on uh, TV. That's right. Um, among the masters of getting away with offense was Don Rickles. He was one of my favorites for his ethnic jokes. He was not afraid to call a spade a spade. <laughs> I get and, it, I get it. And, and as with most humor, there's always a kernel of truth in every laugh. And that's what makes it funny. We know that there's something true about what's being said. And we're just glad that somebody had the nerve to say it. It's what Scott said. You know, people are saying these things in private, but when you go out in public and somebody finally says it in public, you're going, whew, what a relief. We can get past that now. Somebody said it in public and got away with it. It's almost like the emperor wears no clothes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Consider how risky it must have been for the creators of Hogan's Heroes to approach the studio execs to pitch a show about Nazi POW camps, a comedy. The results were classic comedy, putting the wit of wis- and wisdom of allied soldiers against the caricature, caricature of a Nazi buffoon in Colonel Klink. If today one were to pitch a show for about American soldiers fighting the Taliban in Afghanistan as a comedy, it wouldn't get past the studio lobby for fear of offending our enemies. That's how far we've uh, gone down the, the wrong road. And that brings us to a, a classic escape clause. Too soon? <laughs> I remember waiting years after 9-11 for the first person to crack a joke about that disaster. And when it finally happened, now I can't really remember who did it or when, but I do remember that he ended it with, too soon, and this was years after 9-11. And this, of course, was so long after the event that that became the joke. Not the joke itself, but the fact that he said, too soon. It was long overdue. Beyond World War II, we even had spoofs of the Cold War with movies like Dr. Strangelove and television shows like Get Smart. That was one of my favorites. And again, my favorite comedy, and I had to mention this before in a very earlier show, is, uh, is British humor, Monty Python. They grew up, or they grew rather from being just plain silly to making us think critically of religion with movies like The Life of Brian and Meaning of Life. They poked fun at death with The Undertaker sketch and The Liver Donor Card sketch. And any Monty Python fans out there know what I'm talking about. If you don't, that's your loss. Look it up. They even took on the Masons with the Architect sketch. <laughs> Religion is such an easy target, though, for comedy, of course, and, and not many can do it better than uh, some local, um, not local, but um, uh, local in time, uh, current comedians, Tim Minchin, Rick, Ricky Gervais, some of my favorites, these two characters, um, and, and the way they attack religion, offend people with their jokes about it. Race jokes are always good for a laugh, as in all in the family. They proved it followed by George Jefferson in The Jeffersons and Sanford and Son. Now, I actually found Sanford and Son to be a little hard to watch at times, and not because of Fred's use of the N-word, which he used quite frequently, and the racial jokes, but because of the harsh way Lamont, his son, always treated his father. A little uncomfortable to watch and not so funny at times for that reason. Lamont was not a very good character, I found. It was always Fred who was the funny man. One of my favorite shows from the 70s was Soap. In fact, it was, uh, if my recollection is correct, one of the first shows to feature a gay character, Jody, played by Billy Crystal. I, can you think of anybody who may have played uh, a gay character prior to that soap in the 70s, Bob? No, no, and it certainly made a, a reputation for Billy Crystal, too, didn't it? It certainly did. Yeah. That was his, uh, some of his first work. A funny show, very funny. Yeah. 
And uh, it was pretty risque in the uh, sex comedy and even poking fun at mental illness with the head character, Bert, pretending he could be invisible by just clicking his fingers. (laughs) (laughs) The 70s and early 80s were great for comedy, and I don't think that... um, that what these shows did could be replicated today in a sitcom because they've pushed that envelope. If we did a show like All in the Family now, it would be okay. So what's funny about that? Yeah, okay. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> they did the envelope. They were the freedom fighters. They opened it up for allow us to say the things that we can say today. Now, late night, of course, is a different matter than sitcoms. Saturday Night Live set the standard for edgy humor. In fact, there's one sketch between Chevy Chase and Richard Pryor that today would be found so offensive, I thought I'd leave it perhaps for a future show. <laughs> on the use, maybe our last show. <laughs> on the use of that one pejorative we can only identify today by the letter N. Now, you may have noticed that we finish every episode of Just Right with a stand-up comedy laugh routine. This is something you started early off in the show, Bob, and I, th- I think that is absolutely perfect. Always leave them laughing. Always leave them laughing. laughing, And that's the reason that you did it. Well, at least one of the reasons. I mean, another reason is the fact that we talk about some pretty heavy, serious stuff on this show. But I, I always want people, and you always want people, to come away knowing that life is still out there to be lived and to laugh and to love and to cry and to have emotions. And, and while everything gets us down and while we talk about philosophy and politics and religion and sex and all that here uh, in a more serious and philosophic vein most of the time at the end of the day always have a laugh so hats off to those freedom fighters of comedy without whom we really couldn't say booger on broadcast radio (laughs) today like we can thanks to who said that? WKRP in Cincinnati remember? Anyway, there you go. That's all we have for this week. Uh, do you have anything else to say, Bob? No, just well said, Robert. I, I enjoyed what you had to say there. Okay, great. So join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and always have a laugh. We'll see you next week. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes. Everything will be... <laughs> you ever watch the Nashville channel? Woohoo! TNN, the No Negroes Network, that's what that is. <laughs> Even Klansmen are going, damn it, this is too damn white. Let's get the fat ass peckerheads off it. I'm Jewish. To me, line dancing looks like giants. <laughs> they love that joke in Kitchener. I wonder why. Okay, anyway.